we could have been a lot bigger if we were not as nice people. Um, if you talk to most people that work for Inkbox, they can talk about the company culture and, and what we cultivated with them. Um, I think, yeah, we, we could have been way bigger if we made deci- decisions that weren't aligned with our morals. You guys have done some really, really cool stuff, right? Like you guys have started a company. You're still running that company in some capacity. It's kind of a Cinderella story how it starts with, I mean, the way I read it online, you guys are going to correct me, is you borrowed some money from some friend and said, hey, we want to start something. And that person was like, okay, sure. Here's 10 grand, I think it was. Kind of. It was yeah. my friend. So I had this friend that Ty knows too. Um, known him since I was like three, played hockey with him, went to school with him. Um, and we had this idea and we told him the idea and he is his uncle passed away a few months before so it was kind of serendipitous how it how it worked out and he got left you know a hundred thousand dollars something along that line mm. um and he was like i'll give you money to start it if you if you want i like i really like the idea i believe in you guys um so he's like here's ten thousand dollars and i was like okay cool here's ten percent of the company <laughs> not knowing that one day would be worth a couple million dollars, 10, 10% of the company. Not a um, bad investment. But yeah, that's how it, that's how it started out. Oh, pretty cool. So um, Tyler and Braden, welcome to the Gen's Talk podcast. Welcome. We appreciate Thank having you, you guys here. I'm excited to be here. No, this is great. I'm excited to talk to you guys. I'm excited to learn about the Inkbox, the company, the, the guys behind the company. Uh, this episode was sponsored by our friends at Toronto Metropolitan University, TMU, which you went to. Yes. Yeah. And they have this really cool master's program that we'll talk about a little bit later. But first things first, tell us the story of Inkbox, how it started, how you guys sort of decided to even come up with the idea. And uh, yeah, you were born and now you're here. What's happened in between? (laughs) Who's better at telling the story? Yeah, I usually tell it. So do you want to tell it? The guy with the sash. I'll interject and say if you're lying or not. Yeah, basically. We had this idea. Um, I was actually at the DMZ, which is one of the zones at TMU. And it's like a startup incubator. And I had this other startup before, which was like a content marketplace. Wasn't really going places, but it was my first one. And when you're starting out uh, your first business, you learn a hell of a lot in the first year. Um, And you learn a lot through obviously doing the wrong things. Um, But while I was doing that, I had this idea for a tattoo I wanted, but I knew at the time it was something I wouldn't want in like 10 years. I didn't want to be that guy uh, with that tattoo that like kind of aged him. Um, And I'm kind of glad I didn't get it on this. It was like this geometric tattoo. And um, anyway, I started playing around with temporary tattoos and couldn't believe that they hadn't evolved since I was a kid. Um, So it was like water ones that you used to have. (laughs) And so, you know, when you you realize I was looking for something else in market that mm, was more akin to like a henna that could last longer, maybe that could look more realistic, but a henna doesn't really do that either. So it just kind of felt like there was a gap in the market for someone like me. And I think Bray will talk to this later too, specifically about the best businesses and the consumer space, at least being born out of personal pain points. And so it was personal pain point. And so I told Bray about the idea. Um, and we have, what were your initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> touching on that point, um, you know, you go to sc- when I went to TMU, 
the main thing you get out of that is you look for personal pain points and you try to solve those and you see how big that market is, right? I mean, if you have that problem, then a lot of people probably do. Um, when I heard you know, Ty talk about this idea, I, I immediately, I, I remember, you know, entrepreneurs talk about this like click sometimes. And I felt like this overwhelming like urge and weird feeling. And, and it sounds so made up now, but, um, but I, I remember telling people at the time, like, this is something we can do. Like I, I know how to build a website. I, I can run social media. It's perfect for social media. Um, I know how to import and export things. I know how to ship things and I know how to do customer service. Like I know how to do everything to start a business. Why am I not doing it yet? Um, and I thought this was the perfect idea to create something that obviously solved a problem in the market, at least for us two. Um, mm. We didn't do much research outside of that. Yeah, um, we didn't do this like, we didn't build a lean business canvas model. We didn't build a- like, No, uh, we didn't a, do anything. A, it was just, you kind of, I think with bit ideas like this, you start to, you have an inkling that it's something, right? And then you want to get feedback from people that you trust who are going to give you an honest opinion, not the American Idol opinion whom, you know, parents give their kids uh, a lot of encouragement that they're good at singing, and then they go on American Idol and Simon Cowell rips them a new one. <laughs> you know, like that's not the kind of, you know, feedback you're looking for. Yeah. Um, you want your honest friends. And overwhelmingly, all my friends were like, I think this is really damn cool. Like I'm not yeah. into tattoos, but I can see it. Mine were the opposite, though. I think and a lot of people we were surrounded by, even at Toronto Met, um, TMU, they thought it was a dumb idea. Like, okay. um, a Who's lot of people, now? yeah, a lot of people, <laughs> came, and, and I have a story on that later, but, um, a lot of people even came when we were first starting it and we were in the fashion zone, um, at TMU, we, we had people come by all the time and like, you know, for tours and stuff and people from DMZ and a lot of people would come by and be like, that's a cute lifestyle business. Like maybe you'll make some money off it mm. one day, a couple hundred mm. bucks a they month. They thought it was just like temporary tattoos, but yeah. But even if you explain the product to them, you know, <clears throat> sell me the product. Pretend I don't know anything about it. How did you pitch it? Um, it's a temporary tattoo that lasts one or two weeks and it sticks into your epidermis rather than permanent tattoos that go in your dermis. Um, say what, what your epidermis? Epidermis. Yeah. So there's two layers of your skin, epidermis yeah. and dermis. Um, so the epidermis so it is, sticks to it, right? No, it sinks into sinks, it. sinks like, into okay, your epidermis. Okay. Um, and that's why it lasts for a week or two. Your okay. um, skin naturally regenerates every one to two weeks. Um, so it's different on everybody, but and different where you put it and what you do. Obviously, if you're in the ocean, it doesn't last as long because mm -hmm. um, that's exfoliating your skin. <clears throat> uh, that's the selling point, <laughs> I guess. I, I keep going if you want. No, but, yeah. Well, um, like, so, so that's the idea. And then that's so you've taken that concept. Yeah. What'd you do next? Okay. So the. Do you want to continue with the yeah, story? Yeah. So yeah. Okay. Um, well, then we went and stayed with the tribes. So let's just put. It yeah. There's some cool. There's some really <laughs> fun stories. So, I mean, initially, I think we pitched it as. Uh, it's funny. We actually called it Inkbox because at time Birchbox was this hot consumer startup that was had like this beauty sampling box, and it looked like boxes, subscription boxes, were the new right. thing. And so initially, we thought it would probably be a subscription box um, that you would just you would basically permanent, non-permanent tattoos is kind of what I initially thought of it. But very quickly, we're like, nah, that's not going to work. Let's just sell it. It's too much to handle right away. Let's just sell it to people individually. Um, and yeah, we pitched it as like one to two weeks. Looks real. Doesn't last forever. Pretty right. simple. Best temporary tattoos you could buy. Um, <clears throat> and so after that, um, we started... 
we basically did a bunch of research, like how do you, this doesn't exist, so mm -hmm. where do we look, right? So we ended up just through research coming across this fruit that grows in the jungles of Central and South America, um, primarily in like Panama and Peru. Uh, and <clears throat> it's used by tribes to dye their skin. And it's not like in North America, it wasn't a thing you could readily access. It started yeah. being important in 2012 by henna artists mostly. Okay. Um, so it was like, lightly on the market, but not, not really mainstream. well known. Yeah, yeah. not mainstream. By yeah. Any means. So we we're like, okay, we want like volume of this. So, you know, how do we do this? And so we ended up finding this guy, Jason, a wonderful dude who uh, lives in the jungles of Panama, um, <laughs> like literally deep in like the most remote, inhospitable one of the most inhospitable places on earth, actually, there's no roads there. The roads literally end okay. um, because it's too swampy. It's too dangerous. There's too many creatures that could harm you. There's too many puddles of quicksand you could sink in. There's too <laughs> many narcos that, uh, that, or the FARC that like actually runs drugs up through Columbia. Which through we actually Canada. went and saw. Yeah. Um, we so, went and like down to the end of the road. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the track in was you fly in the Panama city, take a five hour drive into into the jungle um which is pretty remote yeah. and on this road it's just a one-way road like you can't really there's not two lanes or yeah. anything there's n barely anybody uh, about halfway through you get stopped by an armed guard a uh, big assault rifle and he has this book which looks like like a five-star notebook for the canadians i think that's <laughs> yeah. the it's yeah. a good reference for the canadians um just like with scribbles in it right takes our passports, writes our passport numbers and the date. And we were like, what is this about? And he just said, in case you don't come back out, we know when you came in at least, um, which is a terrifying story. Yeah, yeah. But um, we stayed there for a week um, in the jungle, which was uh, um, interesting to say the least. I assume this made it into the pitch deck. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I actually don't know. Maybe. Yeah, a tiny bit. Yeah. Okay. It was more on the pitch presentation you'd tell yeah. the story, yeah, okay. which was always intriguing. Yeah, so. basically, so we started importing that fruit, and we started very, um, le like, just, it wasn't very professional. Um, I bought a silhouette printer, which is, like, used for arts and crafts, and it's a little die cutter. Yeah. Um, I imported some black adhesive um, vinyl from China, from, like, AliExpress or something, um, yeah, AliExpress was our thing. I mean, Alibaba, AliExpress, we yeah. and Uline just ordered like all these supplies. And Don't use Uline because they're a horrible company. But yeah, <laughs> yeah just a side note. Um, okay. But we used what we yeah what, what what we had access to, and we created this product that was basically like uh, a die cut adhesive that you stick on your skin. You take the fruit and you just use these little. At the time, vaporizers were just exploding, and mm -hmm. these little—you remember those little bottles with the needle tip on them? Yep. We used those because they were accessible okay. um, and they were cheap. They're like, you know, five cents a piece right. um, in, in bulk. And we put the fruit in that, in that, and you'd put it on your skin and then leave it on for two hours, and then after you take it all off, and it's it would just messy show up. product. It was a horrible product. You had to keep it frozen. So I had, we had like. I kept it in my fridge <laughs> uh, at home, and then yeah. I would we'd buy these coolers and. You know, you try to ship it with an ice bag, it's like a mess. Um, but I think that's like a really important lesson is if you're not embarrassed looking back at your product, then you launch mm. 
too late. Unless you're an engineer and you're building a bridge or something. <laughs> you better oh, be perfect. You better be perfect. Yeah, yeah. That's what the ring is yeah. for. Entrepreneurs are not perfect, though, right? You don't. Yeah. You, you don't have to be perfect. Well, I think that's a. That's a. I'm glad you say that because I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially today, when they see social media and they see the glamour of entrepreneurship, I think they get a very false sense of what it really takes to build mm -hmm. a business. Well, the product. I mean, the product has to be good enough, right? It has to be good enough to prove it's a minimum viable product. It has mm -hmm. to prove that people want your product, and when your early adopters will always give you the benefit of the doubt on products. Mm -hmm. They'll be like, this is cool. Here's some feedback. Um, and so that's what we did. We launched it. Uh, we built up an Instagram account, which was funny because we didn't even have the product yet. We were just Photoshopping tattoos onto models, <laughs> stock photos, like super scrappy. Um, and I think we built up like three or 4,000 followers organically before we launched. And then we launched, put up a simple Shopify site, some cool designs that we just made ourselves. And yeah, we got like four or five sales the first day. And on Shopify, the little cha-ching on your phone, you make a sale. And the coolest yeah. thing is when you start making your first sales and like, wow, people are buying what I put out there. It's such a yeah. cool feeling. Validation. Mm -hmm. Like all that hard work. Yeah, then you turn the ring off pretty quickly when, yeah. when you scale. And you're like, so, oh, this is annoying. Yeah, we so, can't have that on. So how did you scale it? Because I think a lot of, again, to go back to the entrepreneurship piece of things, when you start a business, it's one thing to come up with the idea. Great, I have an idea great i have a starting point yeah but now that i'm seeing some traction the next question is how do you actually make it go bigger yeah let me take that so um the biggest challenge especially if you're starting your first business and you don't have a network like we did or access to capital or people who know people who have capital how do you get the ball rolling you know mm -hmm. it's like a snowball rolling downhill um you you gotta just kind of hustle and figure it out so what we did was just through one of the zones uh, we incubated at the fashion zone at TMU. Um, and through there we got access to some investors. I wouldn't say they were the most sophisticated ones for us in particular, because no one really knew our industry. Right. Um, but there was a few that believed in us. Um, and through them, I just networked off of them. And so, you know, they were like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can fund this yet. I think you guys need some more traction and stuff. And, I finally got, we got introduced through these people to a VC in New York who does uh, investments in like the sciences, but like consumer science products. And so we knew we needed a better product. So for a while we took 5,000 of that, or 2,500 of that $10,000 and put it towards uh, a chemist essentially to tell us like what was in this fruit and how could we extract it and make it like a cosmetic grade product. That was just, like just off Kijiji or something, it, right? It was, I just posted on, uh, on um, like Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you and, found a chemist. Yeah. And found this guy who was in between his master's and his PhD um, from uh, at Stanford. And I was like, cool. So he's like, let's do this project. And in a couple of weeks, he got back to me with this document. He's like, yeah, I think we could figure this out. And so we spent like four or five months figuring out the science. And once we got it close enough, we're like, okay. Um, in that time frame, we were talking to this other investor. <clears throat> and one of the most important things you can ask investors is, what do you need to see from me to, you know, get a check from you? Mm. Um, and he said like half a million dollars in sales. And I think you're in the next six months and you're looking good. So like, okay, how do we do that? And so Kickstarter, we didn't have access to capital. So we're like, we need some money to fund this new version of the product mm -hmm. and to manufacture it. We didn't know how to do that either. We're just like, we set a goal of, I think it was like $20,000. Yeah. Um, and then ho hoping it would just pick up off there and we hustled for it. So basically, um, <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty yeah. fun. We printed yeah. off. So basically, we took some of our own money, about $1,000, and we walked around the incubator, the, the DMZ, <sighs> and we gave people 20s, and we're like, go back our project. Like, we literally paid people to go, because it's a, lot of, a lot of it is about velocity and getting on, like, the magic yeah. page. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so trick that algorithm to pretty much. Yeah. And so we, f we kind of forced it in a sense. Um, but we knew that like once enough people actually got it and got in front of people, people would buy. Right. And sure enough, it just like a snowball, it just kept rolling. Um, and then we ended up raising 275,000 there, but we also made like half a million on just our site. People actually wow. buying the old version of the product at the same time. So yeah, we made, like, it really swamped 800K us. 800 K in like two or three months. And then I was like, I went to the investors and I was like, here, here's what we've done. They're like, okay. And then we got the term sheets. Wow. Yeah. How many people were on this team at the time? Us two. Just the two of you. Yeah. yeah and two much. interns. Two interns. Paid interns. Okay. Yeah. That were doing more fulfillment. Well, we did all fulfillment and all that stuff too. I mean, I would sit down with a bucket from the dollar store with a, a spoon from the dollar store and just mix ink with the hand. I didn't have like a mixing tool or anything. Right. I, I didn't, like we didn't a have witch in a cauldron. We didn't have money for that. It was just <laughs> mix it in the bucket put the bucket into these empty ketchup bottles from the ketchup bottle, put it into the small bottle. It was, it was a process. Right. Um, but every time I do that, I would think this is worth $20 and I just made $20 mm -hmm. and that's what kept me going. I was like, this is crazy. I can work hard and make money no matter what. And I don't have to listen to anybody on what hours I'm doing or, or how much I need to, to work. I'm just making $20 every time. And it's on you. It's the labor that you put into it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It's your work. So when we had Wes Hall on, he talked about how whenever he's looking at companies to invest in, he looks at the person behind the company yeah. just as much, if not more, than the company itself. Because the product could be fantastic, but if you don't have the right people behind it, it means nothing. Mm -hmm. And just listening to you guys talk, I can see why somebody would want to invest in that company because they look at it and go... These guys are not just saying, here's a product and we think it can make money. It's blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, everything in it. Like, I was there stirring it myself. You guys yeah. really put it all in. We don't come from, like, a, a wealthy background or anything. And our, our dad, <clears throat> he worked at GM for 40-plus years. And he always, always just told us, like, don't work at GM, obviously, <laughs> um, on the line especially, right? But that give you gives you the value of hard work. Um, you had to do it. And <clears throat> for us, it was just, like... We, there was no task too dirty or small that you wouldn't do yourself, right? We we did everything. We did everything from A to Z to, Z to start a business. Um, didn't outsource anything for ever, I feel like. How'd you guys, like if there's a task and it was just you two that, let's say both you guys wanted to do or both you guys didn't want to do, to pick which who got to do what, if there was that situation. <clears throat> I don't know if we ever had like that exact yeah. conversation it was just knowing what we were good at so you plug gaps too i think yeah you want your early players in your business we hired a couple like our first employees were all generalists they were like us they just did everything mm. and then you know but people have strengths and then you kind of discover people's strengths and they get kind of more um they go down one path so to speak uh, in the company um but you want people who can plug gaps where we say that like plug this gap plug this gap and the best employees or team members especially in an early startup are people who know just instinctively where there's a gap and that they should plug it like they don't need to be told it's just like something's not no one's picking this up because this person's doing this i gotta support them i'm gonna go do this and help them out mm -hmm. so yeah and at the beginning when let's say there wasn't as much capital flowing and you had people on board how did you find ways to, 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 like, to handle the finances of it all? Because you had the expenses, and obviously now you want to onboard. We didn't people. is the is the real answer. We did not. <laughs> okay. We <clears throat> didn't bring on um, our, our Louise, our CFO, for the first six months or maybe. Oh, it was like a no a year for sure. Yeah, yeah, a year. We we were told not to worry about that kind of stuff really until okay. you had the like. There's things when you're like building and just in it, like 
you know, you can deal with after probably. Um, I used to put all the receipts in a, in a folder mm-hmm. and that folder eventually went to our CFO that we hired and said, you got to figure this out now. Yeah, uh, yeah. It took her a long time to figure out, but um, we still paid people obviously. Sure, um, yeah. But that was just like as simple as looking at the bank account and being like, yeah, we can't afford <laughs> to pay going. people. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it, a lot of people overthink things. Okay. When it's not that hard. I think especially if you go to business school, you learn all these like methodologies and stuff and you graduate, well, I you go to school. I know, but you, <laughs> but you didn't pick that up. You said you were a bad student before this. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, people go to McKinsey afterwards and they become a consultant. And it, I think entrepreneurship is really a lot of it's not overthinking. Um, and at least for your first business, especially when you don't come from a background with a network. Okay. Like if you need to start this without much resources, without much of a network, that's how you have to do it, right? I think it's different for people that have money. Or have resources. people in their circle. Yeah, that exactly. Can, it's a bit different. Yeah. So I just want to circle back to something you asked before, was how do we scale? I think if I was listening to this right now, I'd be like, okay, they raised some money, but like, how did it grow? Yeah. Um, at the time, this was the heyday of Facebook ads. Um, so a lot of success in business is timing, to be honest. And I, we were really riding a wave, you know, you just got to open yourself up to being, um, you know, available when that luck and that timing hits. Mm -hmm. And for us, it was the fact that we were seeing other companies in the consumer space, like Warby Parker, Harry's, um, Dollar Shave Club, Birchbox was the one at the time too. um, scale up real fast off of these cheap Facebook ads and it created this new industry called direct to consumer where you cut out the middleman of a distributor, um, you know, or a wholesaler, um, which takes usually half your cost. Um, and then and you give only a fraction of that to Facebook to drive ads because they were so good at targeting consumers based on their data. Um, so that was like a 10 year thing and we got on maybe like year three of it. Okay. Um, so for us, it was about getting an initial like, organic followers initially on our, our socials, particularly Instagram. Um, and then from there, leveraging the data, <clears throat> the lookalike audiences from the initial uh, consumers um, and just expanding and uh, putting money into that and just reinvesting every, all the dollars uh, back into growth. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much how we grew. And we grew a significant influencer marketing um, uh, a, a team at our company really. Um, and they, we send a ton of products out to, to micro influencers mostly. Um, so that gives us a lot of like natural why, exposure. As well. Why micro influencers? Cause macro influencers are very expensive and you realize that they just don't give you the bang for, for your buck. I think. So, yeah. We also, more. we brought in influencers in house too. Um, so a popular YouTuber, Canadian YouTuber, Curtis Connor worked for us, um, before he was huge on, YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, he was big on Vine and then Vine shut down. And, you know, I had this idea that why isn't there one person that can represent our brand as an influencer and just make content all day for us? Mm-hmm. That, this was actually kind of a rare thing. You didn't see that from brands um, back in 2016, maybe 2016. Um, so we brought him on and he, you know, helped accelerate our brand um, just by making <laughs> content every day. Like, new content. And, and we, we talk about that now is like getting fresh content every day is, is difficult. It's expensive. Sure. Yeah. Um, and we know how valuable it is. Bring in your own influencer. If you can do that, someone that really represents your brand is a crazy good value. If you can just offer them a salary and there is people like that out there that just are starting out that are, have 
really raw skills that you can harness and and build with them. Obviously, eventually you want them you want to let them go, but that's one of the nicest things in the world is helping someone on their career path and, and letting them go on to the next thing. Yeah. No, of course. But I, I think it's such a fascinating thing when you say micro influencers because I think oftentimes people think that they need that big million follower influencer to really leverage their business. It depends on the brand. Sometimes that may work if you have a very uh, you know, a very specific target audience that they speak to. Mm -hmm. um, ours was quite generalized, so there was just no one influencer we could go to, right? And so now specifically with TikTok, it's kind of a, a venture investment approach to content where the algorithm and the AI behind the algorithm, I would say actually really democratizes um, users across the platform. So someone that has almost no followers can still get a viral hit mm -hmm. um, where you wouldn't really see that on Instagram where your followers really mattered um, in, in terms of how many people you'd get in front of. And so what we do is we just send a bunch of products out to people who have like 5,000 followers, 10,000 followers, and one out of 10 will hit and that'll be like a million view video. Right. And that's yeah. what you want. Then you, that's the one you put money behind for ads and stuff as well. Okay. Yeah. So you're sending this stuff out first, surveying the landscape. Once you find the one that does well, now you're spending your money strategically. So you're not just spending money frivolously. Yeah. And it's more organic too. Cause you know, we do pay some influencers too, of course, sure. but mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the ones that go viral, we didn't pay. We just sent them products like, Hey, if you want to post about this, or they're, just customers. So. Yeah. Customers or they're just customers. Yeah, customers that are too. using the product. And so it's yeah. organic. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. And so you've scaled it now at this point, and then the money's coming in, the business is growing. How did you go from we're building out this business, we've scaled it, we're making some money, to we're going to sell it? Yeah. So kind of a complicated question to answer, but um, we always, I mean, when you're starting a startup, you typically have two goals, um, either sell or go public. So mm -hmm. there's an exit at some point in the future. Uh, for us, we always thought we would sell to some sort of cosmetic conglomerate like Estee Lauder or L'Oreal or Shiseido or someone like that um, because we thought we played in the beauty space. And um, we do, but um, yeah, about a year before we got acquired, um, Bic, who acquired us, who makes pens, mm -hmm. razors, mm -hmm. lighters, uh, the CEO reached out to me uh, and just said, hey, love your company, let's chat. And I was a little nervous because they have a, they had a competing product and market at the time. Um, and, you know, not directly competing, but, you know, close enough. There was, you know, overlap on the Venn diagram. And took the call and was a little cagey, but, you know, he wasn't pushing, he wasn't pressing either. So you think, you always hear stories about uh, large companies stealing secrets from smaller companies. Yeah. It was clear that they weren't trying to do that. Um, and so, yeah, we just had a regular conversation for about a year, you know, once every two or three months and just gave them kind of updates on the business. And eventually they said, uh, you know, we're interested in acquiring your company, like let's chat. And so that's when you get your lawyers involved and everyone mm -hmm. uh, and your board and you start uh, negotiating and doing due diligence. Okay. Yeah. Before we go any further, you said the word board. What's the importance of having the right board? Yeah, it can be very important. So because you, it's not like you're just, hey, you're a friend of mine. I've known you for years. You want to sit on my no, board. Like no. You've got to be strategic with that. Yeah, very strategic. And so typically when you're starting your company, you don't have a board for the first while, unless you're 
you know, an experienced entrepreneur and like you're building your next thing and you build a board right away. Mm -hmm. Like, but if you're starting your first one, um, yeah, you don't have a board for a while. It's not something you focus on. Typically you'll have an advisory board before you have a, there's two different types of boards. There's an advisory board and there's like a board of shareholders, um, for, for your shareholders that represent your shareholders. Um, and they have power. The advisory board doesn't have power. They just give advice. Mm -hmm. you usually throw them some options, some equity in your company, and they work with you for about a year, maybe a meeting once a week or something. They give you guidance. You get access to their network, that type of stuff, right? Yeah. It's just a way to compensate people without having to pay them, essentially, yeah. um, up front. Which you is a lot more common than people think. It is very common because, yeah. you know, a lot of people who are very successful don't need a lot more money. They're just yeah. like the upside of me just helping you once a week and getting that equity could be way worth way more anyways. So yeah. I'll just do that. So that's the advisory board, which we had, you know, we just had advisors hopping in and hopping out, helping us with certain things we needed help on um, where we were challenged. And then once we raised capital, typically when you raise a lot of capital, um, those venture funds will put one of their um, partners on your board. Um, to represent the shareholders from that round and represent their own interests. Obviously, they want to say in how the company's operating. They want access to all your information because they want to make sure that their money's not being just wasted. Mm. Um, and so we had a board of four for a while, two founders, two investors, and then we brought on a fifth to be the tiebreaker. Um, and then when we sold, we had a board of five. Okay. Yeah. And so the process of selling a company, one that you've built from the ground up type of thing, there's a lot of emotional connections to that thing. It's like your own baby, essentially. How did you reconcile the notion of this is something that we're going to have to... And, and, and my understanding is you're still part of the company, mm -hmm. but the concept of selling it in some capacity, like how do you reconcile that idea? Because I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, that, that thought is like... Yeah, for me, it wasn't that hard because I've always separated personal from business and that's how you should operate okay. all the time. Like even why as an employee, because it makes it a life a lot easier, Okay, a lot easier if you can separate those things. And if you can work on that skill set, um, go into work and whatever happens at work, it doesn't come home with you. That's important. You're protecting your home, protecting yourself too. Mm. Um, so I think I cultivated that throughout the time at Inkbox. Um, and it wasn't as hard when you're making a lot of money. <laughs> you make it sound easy, but it's, hard. It's, it's, it's really hard to disconnect though still. Um, but you try. Yeah. 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 And you guys are obviously brothers. Mm. You seem to be getting along just fine right here, right now. I've actually been kicking him under the table. Have you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what that means. Don't say is. that. Don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but there's going to be, there's been times I'm sure where you, you know, you've completely disagreed on something. You've butt heads one, you know, wants to do it one way the other one wants to do it another way maybe that's not the exact case yeah, but not there's times where i'm sure you know working with family is always a very fine line not as much as you would think i, okay. I don't we can never pinpoint like one time even that where that okay. was like a full disagreement i think if you're honest from the start and you can lay out what exactly you're good at what you're in charge of and even if someone dis disagrees you can disagree and commit then that works very well. Okay. Um, you know, you have to have trust that that person has that skill set to take you to a certain point at least before you have to bring in um, others um, that are a lot more experienced in that. So off the beginning, I think the way we separated was the analogy we used at least was Tyler was more of steering the ship and I was more of keeping the ship going forward. Um, so I was, you know, it was clear from the beginning, clear from the beginning that, that okay. like, 
if anything was keeping the ship going forward, that was me. But if anything was guiding us and steering us, that was Tyler. So okay. I was, for example, I was bringing in the, the funding. I was doing the R&D. I was bringing in the executive hires, building the board, um, setting the strategic vision based on like the market data. Um, but I mean, it's not like he wasn't involved in all of that too. Um, and it's not like I wasn't involved in what Braden was doing, which was managing, get setting up the CS team and speak like literally building the FAQ our initial FAQ on our everything, running like, social media, things, running mm-hmm. social, yeah. Right. Getting designers, f- doing fulfillment, running all those teams. Like I, yeah. I, I I've ran every single team okay. in the, in the company at some point. So the advice would be each person has to have a very clear role and responsibility essentially. Uh, it's hard to say though. Yeah. I mean, ours was like, I would say loose. Um, and again, that whole gap plugging thing, like, you know, you know, I think trust is the main thing. Like you got to trust the other person's working hard. Thank God. None of us slacked off. And like, if one of us did, that might create some problems, might create some resentment. Oh, why am I working this hard? If he's not like, I never had that feeling. Um, so you know, I think we we benefited from that. Uh, we also split everything equally in terms of like salary, equity, everything was split down the middle. So there was never a debate. It was just, this is what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think when you disagree, like that's the whole thing with Amazon, like they had this really great, uh, like um, <clears throat> guiding principle in business decisions to disagree and commit. Um, so sometimes you, someone's really passionate about something You've looked at it from all angles. There's really no easy answer. Sometimes you just have to disagree and commit to their opinion. Um, and the best, if it goes well, it goes well. You all win. If it goes wrong, usually you don't all lose, but they lose a little bit of face. You get to rub it in their face a little bit. That uh, <laughs> wasn't the right decision. <laughs> I think it's best if you're transparent around that too, right? Yeah. If something doesn't work, you sit down and talk about why and what happened. Right. Um, a lot of people will just, shove that under the rug and, and move on. But um, I, I think you need to yeah, be very open with your business partner. Okay. And if you can, so, go so ahead. What's the age gap between you guys? Three years. Yeah, he's three years older. Yeah. Have you guys always been close? We were oh. when we were kids and then time moved away for a bit. Mm-hmm. Left me. <laughs> <Stranded>. <laughs> so what advice would you give your younger selves? If you can go back in time Younger Tyler, younger Braden. You're how about young, to start. How on this, young? That makes a big difference. You're about to start on this journey. Oh, I think Inkbox. You walk into a room, younger you sitting there contemplating this idea of Inkbox. What advice would you give yourself? Find more balance. In what way? In life. Okay. Like work hard, but like there's a point, like where it's too much. And I think when you're building a business, like you just work hard. You have to. You have to work hard. Like. Um, but there's just a point where it's like after years of it, like, you know, burnout's real, like it happens. Mm. And I'm pretty lucky in the sense that it took me a long time to start feeling burnouty. Um, but it, yeah, like it's it, not a word. Yeah. <laughs> Burnt out. <laughs> Burn, I like it. Burnouty. It's, it's funny. It's, it's a word today. It's, it's a, a word, today, it's yeah. word of the day. <laughs> burnouty. Um, yeah. So I would just say like find the balance. I would say practice more gratitude. You know, when I was in the weeds, just building, you, you never really found a moment to stop and appreciate things, um, appreciate where you are and, and what you're able to do. And, and if I really had to give more tactical advice to myself, I'd be like record everything and anything and, and have that for future use of memories. Cause there's so much that I wish I remembered 
that uh, like so many people that were part of it, so many little things that I wish I can go back and experience for the first time again. Okay. Is there a specific moment in time that you can look back on and go, that was the moment where I knew this was going to turn into something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> There's a moment for me, probably different from Ty, but um, we, when we did the Kickstarter, we were on BuzzFeed. The same um, moment, yeah. And all of a sudden, there was like 100,000 people on our website in one day. Because on Shopify, you can see those metrics. And yeah. we were like, oh, damn, this maybe this <laughs> is something. And I remember walking out and Ty looked at me and was like, we're going to be millionaires one day. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't believe it at all. I was like, I'm, there's no way. Like, I, I mean, maybe we'll make thousands of dollars, but no way we're going to be millionaires one yeah. day. Yeah. Uh, same for me. I think we're going to grab lunch and we're just walking up, going up to an escalator. And yeah, we're just like reminiscing about just like, holy shit. <laughs> like there was just so much action. There were so many articles published about us and like, it just felt like the moment where everything took off. Nice. Yeah. How do you ground yourself after something like that? Oh, you don't ground yourself initially. <laughs> you, you go for it. You let yourself yeah, you feel let, it. You let uh, yourself you feel just it. go. I, I, yeah. No, you don't ground yourself at all. You just go dive into it. Okay. Yeah, it's like an energy it gives you. You're just like, fuck yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Exactly. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and you just you just harness that. And it's like that you harness the energy yeah. and you just use it to propel you forward. And any advice you'd give to new entrepreneurs? My, mine for, for, it always changes, but mine right now would be to compare yourself less to other people um, and start being grateful and um, understanding your path and what what you come from and what resources you were given and how successfully you measure up towards that, not other people, right? Everyone's in different positions in life and, and born in Canada or born somewhere else. You know, thankfully in Canada, like we were given, we, were, we started on second base still, right? A lot of people don't mm. get opportunities that we have been given, sure. even if it wasn't more than a lot of people are given, right? Um, I think I see a lot of people just compare themselves to others, and, and especially with social media, it's just uh, it's a tough thing for people. It's hard. Yeah, comparison is truly the thief of joy. Um, you know, for me, this one's going to be very tactical and specific, um, but focus on being initially a very good judge of character, because your first employees set the tone for the rest. Hmm. And if you get that wrong, you get the whole culture wrong. Did we get that wrong? <laughs> we got the very right. Well, yeah. no, but they were nice people. Yeah. All very I think good natured people. A lot of the time we hired just good natured people and, and it wasn't, didn't matter the skill set, especially on the beginning. Cause, mm -hmm. um, we just, yeah, we just wanted people that cared. believed in it and yeah. cared. Yeah. Right. Like you can't buy caring no. for a business. Yeah. You have to convince someone to care and that's hard to yeah. do. Right. And, and I think we were pretty good leaders in that sense is that, you know, we didn't come down on people too hard. It was like, you know, we're, and we're doing it with you. Like we're filling bottles with you. We're shipping orders with you. Like we're in there. I, I remember at a, at a party actually that we had, I was like cleaning up the garbage like around. Mm -hmm. And this was when we were a bit bigger, like hundred employees or something. And I was like grabbing the garbage bags and taking them out. And someone that was there that was friends with, um, one of our employees was stopped me and was like, aren't you the founder of this company? What are you doing? Why are you taking the garbage out? Yeah. And they're like, I want a job. I want to work for you, which is, you know, I yeah. think 
you don't lose that either. You know, keep doing huge compliment. Keep doing keep doing dirty things. Yeah. Always like just always roll up the sleeves, put in the work, get in the trenches yeah. with your people. You understand it too, right? Yeah. A lot of entrepreneurs will just go and pitch or or meet people all the time and not be there with their team. Is there a, a pitfall to entrepreneurship that people should avoid? Don't get caught up in being an entrepreneur. Like the concept of yeah, it. Yeah, a lot of, I call it like entrepreneurship. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, a lot of people I saw in the DMZ, for example, not all of them, but like there are a lot of oh, people who just learned. loves the, they love, I'm not trying to be judgy or anything, and just like there are a lot of people who really like the concept of entrepreneurship. I think at the time it was very sexy. I think it still is probably, but it was so, like yeah. sexy. People wanted to do it. And so there's a lot of people who would dip their toes into it and they would live the lifestyle. You know, they would talk the lingo, they would overuse all the, the slang and they would play ping pong and drink beer out of a, out of a, a tap. But like, it was just like, they loved the lifestyle, but they didn't put in the work. Right. Um, and so I would say that avoid that pitfall, focus on, just focus on your business. That's it. Yeah. yeah, build a community, but focus on your business. That's probably because of social media, though, and yeah. glamorizing it, right? Yeah. If there was, and that's why I go back to that content thing. If I had a, a bucket full of content that for when we started the business, it was not glamorous. It was not nice. It was horrible. Right. Like it, entrepreneurship is not. It, it's not great, especially at the start. It's hard. It, it's hard. It's terrible. Yeah, WeWork made it look f glamorous with all the ping pong and the. Yeah, that's. But if you're doing that parties. all day, you're not building. Yeah. Right. You're actually doing the opposite in most cases. Yeah. yeah. How did you build a How do you build a community? Because uh, a now lot of creators. Before. Both. Do, do you like, mean for your brand or for you personally? For your brand, like in in the case of Inkbox, you're you sent out products and whatnot. But how do you cultivate a community of people that will follow the journey and wait for the next thing and support it and recommend it? Because I think that's where a lot of brands tend to hit a wall sometimes is they'll have a great product. They can never get it to translate to their community. Can I just start on that? I, I think people talk about community a lot and building a business. There are very few businesses that have been successful based off their communities. At the end of the day, it's just like the classic P's, you know, of, of marketing. It's getting the right price, getting the right customers, getting the right promotion, getting the right distribution channels. Like it's really tactical stuff. Okay. You got to speak to people's language, of course, from a marketing standpoint. But, you know, we did build a community, but I would never say our community was like super duper active. No, but I think one thing that I recommend is the people that are behind your brand, that those people bleed throughout your channels. You can tell what kind of people are running the customer service and the social media, right? And if you're hiring people that speak your brand ethos and speak to your brand pillars, then it's going to hit to other people that also, like other consumers that um, believe in that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, for us, it was very expressionate people. Um, so there's a lot of people coming. Very what, sorry? Expression. Expression. I think you just word? made up a word. Expression. No, two words. We're making up words. <laughs> so yeah. Bernie, what was mine? Obviously entrepreneurship. What was your Burn out. You get the Burn out. Yeah. Yeah, you got to make stuff up. <laughs> the, great, great advice. Oh God. Make stuff up. I do this all the time where yeah, I'd be speaking to the whole up. team and I would ask, I'd just say a word that was clearly wrong, but people would just be like, yup. <laughs> Go along with it. A lot of time you have to make stuff up. Yeah, it's fine. So you've mentioned the DMZ, you've mentioned TMU a few times. I wanted to talk to you about the the master's program there. So you went to TMU. Yes. Okay. So they've got this master's of engineering, innovation, and entrepreneurship. 
Why is that such an important thing today? Because you've talked about networks, you've talked about being in the right environment, having access to the right people. Why is something like that so important? I think for me, the greatest thing to come out of school was networking. You know, coming out of school and knowing people, and that's how I got a job to begin with. Right. Um, I just knew someone that, and that's how I got hired. Um, being part of a, a program like that, you are around people that are similar to you. Um, they want to build. Um, that gives you energy, like we talked about before. Uh, that's who you have to surround yourself um, around, too. You can't just sit at home and, and expect you, yourself to get that energy from being on your computer all day. You need to be around people. Yeah. And the courses that they teach, like you're being taught by real-world experts, people who like CEOs, people who've actually done the work. Yeah, and no fault to other professors, but a lot of the professors haven't done the work. You know, we talk about entrepreneurs, some of those professors are probably entrepreneurs, not <laughs> truly entrepreneurs that have been there and done that. Because you obviously, like just like anything else, you kind of want to learn from a person who's rolled up their sleeves. Like if I mm -hmm. wanted to learn about entrepreneurship, I'm talking to you guys here because you guys have done the work. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the the master's program has all the teachers in that program have been entrepreneurs or VPs at yeah. startups before. So you do learn, um, you know, quite a bit. And that Remind me of the name of that, the master's program again. It's masters of masters engineering, of engineering innovation, innovation, and entrepreneurship. You got it. it is a mouthful and it covers a lot. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a pretty cool program um, there. I think one cool thing about TMU is that um, they really do focus on supporting startups. You know, we got our, I got my start first in the DMZ, which is an incubator, mm -hmm. one of the zones, probably the main one, I would imagine. Um, and then we went to the fashion zone, which is one of the other zones, but there's like a legal zone, there's an engineering zone, there's like a ton of different zones that incubate startups. Um, and this which is such a cool concept. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And this, this program itself is uh, less than two years, and it's like an evening course. Um, and so you basically learn how to build a business while building a business, which is okay. action learning, action oriented learning, which is how we've always learned. Like I didn't go to business school. So when I started, when we started Inkbox, I read a book called the 10 day MBA mm. and like just read business books as I had the challenges I needed to learn from them. Mm. And so I actively applied everything I was learning. And I think that's really valuable from a program. And that's why the master's program is so important is you're doing it. Yeah. Um, TMU is known for that. It used to be a college. Um, known for throwing you into situations and you're learning by doing. Yeah. That's when you learn the most, right? That, yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that you, you learn it. more from that than sitting. Yeah. Yeah, hands like, on, like we need to do more hands on learning. Um, yeah, honestly. Yeah. A lot of our interns were all, and like they were all part of courses from two of our first employees were interns yep. from, I don't forget what courses they were in. Retail management was one of them for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but courses that the zone introduced us to these, in, like, yeah, these, the master's these program you can earn up to th or get grants up to thirty eight thousand dollars too. Oh, really? For the two years, so um, you know you can almost get paid to go to school, which yeah. is yeah, um, a concept incredible. that we need. Yeah, it's as more opposed to like borrowing yeah. money. Yeah, and yeah there's, there's lots of grants too, though. Like as for um, entrepreneurs in Ontario, uh, there's a lot of different grants you can apply for. I think we we ended up getting a twenty five thousand dollar grant, which helped for sure. Um, but yeah, it's very nice to get your business off the ground. Oh, it's very cool. So you'd recommend it to, to like entrepreneurs who are starting out? Absolutely. Yeah. And then the evening component is just so nice because it's got that flexibility. Cause and most, you're in the downtown core. I mean. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to meet people, that's where you want to meet them. Exactly. Right? Um, I, I love having your university 
right in downtown Toronto. I mean, what better place to network and yeah. start a company? So right now, you guys are still part of, in what capacity are you still with Inkbox? Still full-time. Still full-time. Yeah. Where do you see it going? Yeah, so we've reached a certain level of maturation, I would say, with the company. Um, we should have like just sub of 50% aided brand awareness in North America, people under 40. So like pretty much half the people you would meet under the age of 40 know us, which is like pretty cool. If you say Inkbox, you know, if like I've heard of Inkbox, but like, yeah, I've seen that before. So yeah. there's a lot of awareness, but we're still pretty much locked in. We're not almost entirely still locked into uh, the D2C channel. Um, so one of the big challenges facing companies like us recently is that um, Apple, uh, great on them for focusing on privacy, users' privacy, um, but they basically fired a really huge shot at Facebook's or Meta's broadside uh, by not enabling them to track data mm -hmm. on people using iOS products. And so for companies like us, it meant we couldn't behaviorally target consumers anymore. So basically a lot of people who would buy our product were searching where to get a tattoo, like my first tattoo, and like, boom, you were in our targeting. And we can't do that anymore. So right. advertising got way more expensive. And so for companies like us, we're looking at uh, moving into dis different distribution channels. I think one of the things you mature into in a consumer brand is realizing that distribution is key um, and really getting the price points and the product selection and the packaging uh, perfect for um, different distribution channels. So we're in 1,500 Walmarts right now across North America. That's incredible. Congratulations. We're in all the that. Indigos. We're in a bunch of Urban Outfitters. Um, so yeah, now we're expanding into different channels, and then we're expanding into Europe as well next year. Oh, very cool. Yeah. So any like why the international? I mean, naturally you would think you want to go global, but why at this point do you think you're ready to move in that direction? Uh, yeah. Um, it's expensive. Um, we do all of our own manufacturing and it's on demand. And so to set up another line in another country uh, is expensive. We do ship internationally from uh, Toronto, but it takes a while to get there. It's not a great consumer experience. There's Packages tax, get lost. Yeah. yeah, there's taxes. Like it's, you for a product at our price point, it's like sometimes not worth it for consumers. Right. You know, you pay $20 on taxes to get a product that's worth $15. Like what the heck did I do yeah. this for? Sure. Um, so uh, And it's they typically blame you. Oh, for, yeah, yeah, all yeah. the time, yeah. Like, uh, so, yeah, we're setting up, a f we have set up a manufacturing line uh, in the UK to service EU now. Nice. Oh, very cool. That's a huge endeavor. How much time are you flying back and forth? Like, how much time wasn't are you spending us. there? It wasn't us. It was our okay. CEO mostly and, and the rest of that team. Gotcha. Yeah. So, would you, one of the things you said at the very beginning I want to quickly go back to is this isn't, this wasn't your first business. <laughs> Not that you have to jump into your whole business, but yeah. the idea is that I think a lot of people think their first idea as an entrepreneur is going to be my first business. It was? Yeah. Okay, so you're, you're a unicorn. One for one. I'm done. Retire on top. That's it. I did run like small, uh, I ran like an eBay store when I was 14. Okay. So like I had like other side things, not real businesses, I guess. But I guess that could be a real business. A business is a business. Yeah. But I think the idea here is a lot of people jump into business thinking the very first one is the unicorn it's gonna hit it's gonna do well and that may be the case like if you are a unicorn like yourself and it works <laughs> but for a lot of people that's not the case how did you in particular reconcile that that first business wasn't going to work i'm ready to jump into another one and try this again because we made more money in the first month than he did the whole, in time. whole year, <laughs> whole year yeah. okay. i guess yeah. that's a good motivator my, yeah i mean 
money money talk it's not just money it's just the validation of people buying your product yeah. i think once you see people buying it more for another thing you're like well that's the thing yeah yeah, yeah. so a lot of our listeners want to know particularly about how you push through the days or the nights when things aren't necessarily working you're thinking you're trying to work through all the different problems and it seems like one problem stacks on top of the other and sometimes you wake up and you go you know what i don't even know if i want to continue this anymore on those particular days how do you push through that how do you go through the mental grind and still wake up and go you know what I'm not feeling like myself. I'm not feeling very confident. I'm fearful that this might not work and I've invested all this time, money, energy, etc. But I'm going to continue to push through. How do you do that? My answer is not going to be that popular probably. My solution to that was bury it. Okay. Um, How come? Just because it's really difficult to deal with. And I didn't have the tools or skill set or experience to deal with it. So I buried it. Okay. Um, now I am paying for that, right? Talking to therapists uh, about how to unbury that and, yeah. and deal with it now, right? Um, but I think, again, you, you, whatever position you're in, there's solutions. And my solution was to bury it and, and deal with it later. And it mm. worked. It worked at the time, but now you're working through those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But that's okay. How's that I process mean, going? It's tough, but uh, I think with the proper expertise from actual therapists that are trained in this, it's, you know, it's not, working. Yeah, it's working. That's all uh, I'm, I'm working through it. So. Very good. Good for you. Thank I you. mean, it takes a lot to just simply go, you know what? I've the, like the self-awareness component of, I've buried this for so long that I still need to actually go back and work through oh, it. Everyone's got stuff ignoring it. from their past yeah. that they buried. I'm yeah. sure that you have, especially men, right? We're told our whole lives not to talk about things and yep. not to show emotion. And, <clears throat> that's something that I'm passionate about is getting more men to, to share their experiences and their emotion. You're speaking our language. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the whole purpose of this particular podcast yeah. is like, you can see someone who's succeeded and done something incredible and then also peel that layer back and go, yes, but this also comes with costs and this is how I'm working through those and that it's okay that it came with costs. It's okay that I didn't feel great and this is how I'm going to continue to work through these type mm -hmm. of thing. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah, a similar thing. I buried it, and uh, it's like a loan you pay high interest on in the future. Uh, and <clears throat> I think, like I mentioned before, I think I thankfully didn't have any other, uh, at least that I was aware of at the time, like mental health issues, didn't have like really bad anxiety or depression or anything. Um, I think what I focused on was always the conviction and the fact that we're it's, it, you're building something exciting and. When you're eight, I think one of the most exciting things is when you're able to give people jobs and you see them passionate about what they do, going to work every day. Then they get married at your company because they meet a partner there, which nice. has happened a ton at Inkbox, which is really cool. And so you start to like, that kind of stuff starts to motivate you as you get larger. The other people in your company start to motivate you more than just the idea. But initially it's the conviction, the idea, and the, you know, you got to try to separate from your identity, but it's tied up to your identity. Oh, this is Tyler. Tyler's from Inkbox. Like that's how people introduce you. What do you mm -hmm. do for work? Like oh, Inkbox. so like, it's really hard to disassociate from. And um, like Bray though, like I <clears throat> buried myself at the time, and the last couple years has just been taking a backhoe to the invisible graves of my past, and like mm -hmm. digging up that version of myself and resuscitating me and um, breathing new life into me. So, yeah. Feels like a weight's coming off, though. 
oh, for by sure. doing that kind of I work. I think the, it's next, hard, but... the next big step will be when we leave Inkbox. And like Ty said, it's that's your association, right? Like That's who you are. That's how it's people part know of your you. identity. So yeah. what's next? You, know, you lose a lot of your identity when, you, when, you, when you're done with that. And how do you build a new one or start over? Or, or what do you feel like? We've I've spoken to people about this and their experiences. And I think it, that's going to be a challenging one. Yeah, the exit component of leaving a company, um, by the way you're describing it, almost sounds like leaving a long-term relationship. Your yeah. identity was tied to that person. In this case, your identity is tied to your company. And I have nothing else. <laughs> no, no, no. Not yet. It doesn't so, have a yeah, wife. Exactly. Doesn't have, have a... No, I do. No. <laughs> <laughs> so you're married? Yes. yes. How do you balance being a husband and being an entrepreneur? I talked about that briefly at the start, um, where it's you don't give your best self to your work. Mm. You know, sometimes you got to leave some of that best self for your home too, right? Don't leave it all at work. You got you to gotta keep some of that and you get rid of some of your bad stuff at work too. Mm. Um, and, and bring home some energy and, and some love and compassion um, for your, your work, for your, for your home too, because that's just as important, if not yeah, more important. I 100% didn't do that. I left my best at the office and I'd come home at nine and I was exhausted and I'd watched a move like a show and I go to sleep, get up the next day. Ty's not married. No, but I, that, I think that plays such an important role, right? I think a lot of people, again, glamorize this idea of being an entrepreneur. It's 24 seven. You're always on and they don't realize that you're burning a lot of relationships that way. Mm -hmm. I didn't do anything in the first two years. Like I didn't go out. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't, we didn't have money. I, how, we didn't, I didn't pay myself for the, I was living off $800 in a, I, I was running social media for another company and I was making $800 a month and that's what I was living off of. Yeah, we were living off of, like, I was living on a couch pretty, pretty much for... Oh, yeah, you slept on my couch yeah, for a long like time. A there, yeah. Is there another months. sibling or just you two? No, just us two. Oh. Yeah. You know, like, third one. Does he get any, sh any yeah, shit? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, guys, thank you so much for coming through. Yeah. This was awesome. One final question. What are you most proud of? Company culture. Yeah, I'd say building a good team of people who care about their work. Um, like Bray mentioned, that shows in the externally facing communications of your team members. Um, but yeah, just like people making friendships and getting married and building their lives. And like in 50 years, they're going to look back and be like, oh, like, how did you guys meet? Well, we met at... And it's just like yeah, to be able to create cool that story. space yeah. for people is, I think, really beautiful. I'm most proud of uh, doing the right thing. Um, we could have been a lot bigger if we were not as nice people. Um, if you talk to most people that work for Inkbox, they can talk about the company culture and, and what we cultivated with them. Um, I think, yeah, we, we could have been way bigger if we made deci decisions that weren't aligned with our morals. Mm. Wow. You don't typically hear a, a business person say something like that. Well, it's because we live in a society of shareholder capitalism <laughs> and the shareholders is the only thing that matters and yeah. the only thing they care about is money so yeah. yeah makes sense but you can't make money without having the right people in place and taking care of those exactly. people where they work their asses off essentially yeah, it might cost you it might cost you a bit in revenue but what you make up for it in long term yeah. happiness in your own life is probably yeah. much outweighing the revenue aspect of it and it worked out for us so i would recommend other entrepreneurs follow that model that we don't often see. Good for you. Yeah. Good stuff, gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming through. Yeah, I thanks. really appreciate it. You thanks. guys have an incredible story. Thank I you. appreciate the honesty, the sharing of all this stuff, but also just a willingness to, to 
share the expertise and the knowledge. I think there's a lot of closed off people in the space that don't want to give away any secrets because they feel as though, you know, this could be my competitor, but your willingness to, to say, hey, this is how we did it. You know, like, take the model. Here you go. If you guys can do something for yourselves, fantastic. We're glad we can contribute to that. Love the story of like people getting married at the company. I think that's fantastic because I think that's such a wonderful, <laughs> wholesome story. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming through. We appreciate you guys. We appreciate Inkbox for, you know, doing great stuff and helping out so many people. And of course, TMU, um, the master's of engineering, innovation, and entrepreneurship, that master's program. Check it out. Um, $38,000, you said? Yeah. In grants? Yeah. That's incredible. Possible, yeah. Um, but thank you both. Appreciate your time. And uh, I'm sure we'll catch up again soon. Thanks very much. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Appreciate it.